and welcome back to the Pin for Pin podcast. I'm your host, Joshua Atkinson, and today we are here with Coach Bob Learn from University of Tennessee Southern. Coach, how are you doing today? Good, Josh. How are you? I'm doing well. So, Coach, take me back to the beginning. How did you get started in the sport of bowling? Well, I happen to live uh, within a couple hundred yards of a bowling center, so that and the fact that my parents did bowl and uh, got me started age of eight years old in junior league. So that was really in the start. And from the very beginning, fell in love with it. That's how most of us start out. So when did you think you could bowl at a higher level? Well, I guess I was in my later teens, I would say right around 15. I realized that my average was, uh, you know, pretty good and that it was equal to many of the adult players uh, you know, back then in the 70s, uh, a 200 average was was actually really, really good. And in fact, um, when I turned 18, um, I had broken the record for highest average held in our uh, in our city, and it was 219. So quite a uh, quite a difference from today's environment. Wow! And with so much success early on, you took that to the PBA. So talk about what it was like your first few years out on the tour and was it difficult to have success? Well, initially, yes, because the, the way I found my way to tour was I bowled this local TV show, which was pretty, uh, pretty well known. It was called beat the champ out of Buffalo, New York. And I was only uh, 18 years old and I had gone on a pretty good winning streak. And uh, through that, I had someone reach out to me and say, hey, I want to put you on tour, knowing full well that I wasn't ready. I hadn't had enough experience. Uh, I decided to to do it because it was a one-time offer, and uh, who knows if you get a second. So I did go out 1982, 83, and 84 on uh, with that first sponsor. Uh, having only made one TV show, and that was in 1984, uh, I decided to come home and do and – do, uh, some other things, uh, which included starting a family. And um, it took me until 1992 to finally uh, find myself back out full time. I would just uh, bow and in the local area and uh, continue just uh, being involved with raising a family. And in 1992, you did find some success capturing your first PBA national tour title. So talk about that experience of winning your first title. Well, um, you know, it just so happened uh, that I had, again, come across someone who wanted to put me out on tour. My best years bowling were in the late 80s in through the early 90s. And uh, I was winning a lot of things on weekends. And a gentleman approached me and said, hey, I want to put you on tour. And I said, well, I got too many things going on with family and whatever. He said, listen, I'll take care of everything at home for you. Just relax, go out there and do what I know you can do. And sure enough, I went right out and I won. Uh, it was the first time I ever felt, um, one, that I was at the level I needed to be. And then secondly, that I could relax and just bowl. And so 92, after all those years of practice and, and, and wanting a national title so much, I was able to, uh, I was able to actually uh, see my dream come true. Um, and, uh, you know, the thing is, it was an amazing moment. And then at the end of the day, 
it was such a fleeting moment. I'm like, I worked my whole life for that. It was here and gone. And now what? Well, the next thing was to prove that you could do it again. And so uh, it wouldn't take me until the next season to, in fact, uh, win a, a bigger uh, event. Uh, and um, and then I knew I was on my way. I was going to stay on tour for a while. I could afford to do this. I was good enough to do this. And, uh, you know, the rest is history. Right. And speaking of making history, 1996, talk about the flagship open where you had that incredible run and ultimately won a PBA tour title, but also made history bowling the 10th perfect game on television. Well, the qualifying was actually done in my home center. Um, so I had bowled more games in that bowling center than anybody. And uh, I was knocking on the door a few other years trying to get to the show. But this time uh, I was able to make it. And Erie was the first location to have uh, arena finals. Uh, we were the first ones to come up with it. And uh, it was my opportunity to bowl not only in front of my hometown crowd, but do it in our civic center. So it was a huge stage, 4,500 people there. And uh, I had quite a lineup as uh, I just made the show. I would have to bowl against a bunch of Hall of Famers, first being Johnny Betraglia. Well, in the first game, he would put on a pretty good run to start the game with a front six. And, um, and I was able to continue my streak beyond that. And in fact, get up in the 10th, needing three for a 300 game in front of my hometown crowd worth $100,000. So that weighed heavily. Obviously, you didn't want to mess up an opportunity like that. Got out my first shot, uh, threw a really good shot. Second shot, got a little bit tentative. I uh, was fortunate to trip a four pin. And then the last one, I just said, you know, make the shot of your life because uh, you'll you'll regret it if you don't. Mm-hmm. And I uh, went up there and threw a shot as good as I've thrown it in my life. And uh, then it was just a matter of time, waiting a couple seconds for the pins to all fall down, knowing that I actually accomplished it. And, uh, I mean, it was beyond uh, you know comprehension, mm-hmm. really, to have a day like I had because I would continue on to bowl against John Mazza. John Mazza would would uh, strike out for 269, and I still had an opportunity to strike out in the 10th for 270, and in fact did so. That was after changing bowling balls in the fourth frame. I started that second game with a 10-pin strike, 10-pin. Switched bowling balls during commercial break. Came back, struck out to win by a pin. On the match three against Parker Bone the third, he would shoot a 279 again, just like Johnny Petraglia, except for I still had room. I could strike out in the 10th for 280. Went up there and threw three more in the 10th to win by a pin once again. The easiest match, I guess, would come in the title match against Randy Peterson. He would uh, go up in the 10th and leave a 28 while he was on his way to shoot 279, turn it into 257. And now I had the opportunity to strike out for 279 and did so. So it was beyond belief having games of 300, 270, 280, 279, and two of those games only winning by a pin. And again, going through all those Hall of Famers and notable names in the sport to go on and win a title in your hometown. But with that stellar performance you set, the all-time PBA record for total pins in a four-game set. 
that was previously set by David Ozio, who's a fantastic bowler in his own right. So just having that monumental success early on and then having a stellar performance in the flagship open, it would take you all the way up to the 99 U.S. Open to win again. So talk about the years leading up to that U.S. Open and then finally winning the U.S. Open. Well, oh, the, the problem with myself was after having a big day like that in Erie uh, was I kind of put a little extra pressure on myself uh, to prove that I was worthy of such a day. And um, I think I pressed too hard the following season. Um, I did come up with um, a couple other second place finishes going into the 99 season. Um, but the U.S. Open was always an event that I bowled pretty good. I was always one of the best spare shooters on tour uh, when I came back in the 90s. Um, not so much in the early 80s. Um, and so I was a grind player. I could, uh, I could. Well, having had uh, success in other U.S. Opens, uh, I was confident going always into a U.S. Open. I knew the lanes were going to be tough. I knew it was going to be a matter of patience and grinding. And uh, it was something I, I felt I was pretty well prepared for. Uh, having had not one in a few years, uh, it was mounting pressure as I had a number of second place finishes going into the U.S. Open, but uh, it would it would end up being uh, an amazing week. Uh, I would lead qualifying by shooting 264 my last game, a qualifying to go around Pete Weber on a U.S. Open pattern, and uh, and then I would just have to wait to the next day uh, to bowl the show. Uh, the pattern had played pretty difficult, obviously throughout the week. The show was a little bit uh, more forgiving. Uh, I would hit the pocket, I believe, every shot but one, uh, but I kept leaving a 10-pin. So here it comes into the 10th frame against Jason Couch, who had just opened with a big split and slid the pin in front of it to miss. So it was a near miss, uh, and I needed to throw a strike to, to lock it up. Once again, I felt like I was almost in that situation with – throwing a shot of your life like the 300 game told myself just to make the best shot you know how and and did in fact uh let go of it and, and start running it out before it got to the arrows and i was on my back looking backwards as it went through the pins for a strike and probably screamed the loudest i've ever screamed in my life uh ever no matter what i've done uh, so it was a pretty big moment because very, you know, it really separates you from other players when you're able to win a U.S. Open. And, uh, you know, it's talked about a lot from other players as well, just how much it means to win a U.S. Open. It's the ultimate test. It's the ultimate uh, uh, grind. And so it, it really um, puts you at a different level. And so very blessed to have a day like that. Um, and so, you know, walking away from that, I felt like, okay, now I might even have a chance – put myself in position for a hall of fame, uh, which, um, I'm still kind of on the edge and then hoping to, to win a few more senior titles, uh, to accomplish that. And you were talking about having all this success. So why did you get into coaching and specifically at the collegiate level? Well, it's a good, it's a good question. Um, you know, I look back uh, throughout my career and uh, realized just how amazing uh, that time was in my life and, and how far bowling took me. I traveled the world. Um, I first started off with a, a 
bowling for AMF and AMF being a global company, they sent me all over the world doing things for them. Um, and then, of course, uh, with my own successes on tour, getting to go to the Japan Cup uh, for many years, uh, and then signing now with uh, Brunswick. These are global companies that have you travel. And, and, and so I've got to see the world, uh, something I would never have imagined as an eight-year-old who wanted just to bowl his next three games on Saturday morning. Knowing that it had changed my life and had really been, uh, you know, all that I could ever ask for, I really wanted to give back. I wanted to create opportunities for others to have a similar experience. Using all your experience that you've uh, collected and not sharing that with the next generation is really something that is a, a big fail in my, you know, in my mind. I think you, you want to share that experience. I had a long learning curve. Uh, I didn't have really anybody that could bring me uh, up to speed quite as quickly as I do with my own college kids. So I think it's, a, it's an opportunity for me to do a good job in bringing other real uh, talented players, um, ones with great potential, uh, and be able to share my experiences and my knowledge of coaching to make them the best they can be in four years. It's a great opportunity to have that much time with people. I've been doing clinics for 30 years. I've always wanted to give back and I'll bring to coach. So talk about how you got to UT Southern. Well, um, going back a few years prior, I had uh, spoken at the uh, national tournament banquet, uh, NAIA that is. And so I was in Chicago um, and I spoke before, uh, you know, all the finalists and I spoke with one of the, the guys that I bowled with on tour um, who um, I didn't know was coaching at the time. And, and I asked him, his name was Norm Titus. I asked him what he was doing here. And he's like, oh, I coach. I coached down in Tennessee. And he told me, uh, you know, where the place was. He talked a little bit about the area and whatnot. He said he really liked it. And uh, it was Martin Methodist College. Well, uh, about five years later, I was – looking around, kind of interested in getting into college coaching. Uh, I had talked to Brian O'Keefe, who had uh, gotten involved uh, with a college program of his own and was doing really, really well. And uh, talking to him and Shannon, they were both telling me, you should do this. And so uh, so I went on my uh, – I decided to start looking around. And sure enough, Martin Methodist College popped up is uh, in need of a – you know, head coach. So I already knew where it was. I knew the area. I was just south of Nashville. And and uh, I also knew that it was a, a smaller program at a smaller college. And I quite honestly was more interested in taking a program that wasn't developed and, and trying to see if I could grow it. And so uh, we were up for the challenge. My wife said, yeah, let's do this. And so we moved to Tennessee. And now we are in season five. And we have, in fact, grown this program, uh, and we're becoming recognized as one of the better programs in the country. So, you know, the work, we put a lot of work into it. Uh, we brought in some really good players, and we developed some players into being, um, you know, high-level players. So it's worked out. It's, it's, been, it's been interesting. Uh, it's a lot more work than what we anticipated, 
but we're, we're seeing the fruits of our labor with our players and uh we're just it's nice to see them succeed and see the the program you know where it's at and you talked about bringing in players so talk about your recruitment plans and your philosophy like what type of players if there's a kid out there listening to this program what type of players are you looking to bring into your program well one that is um is okay with structure um so a lot of a lot of athletes to play other sports are brought up in a more structured uh setting and a lot of times in bowling, you know, with just youth leagues and maybe some high school bowling and not, not everybody on my team has gone through high school bowling, but they've all played other sports. So when we get to this uh, level, uh, there's got to be structure and there's got to be uh, demands that they're not used to meeting. And so it really takes a, a person that's up for that because we're going to make them work. We're going to make them be the best that they can be. And if they're just not used to structure, it's just going to be, a struggle to make that happen. And so uh, we are, we are structured in what we do uh, and we need, we need buy-in. And so when you have that interview with somebody, it's really about getting to understand what they're looking for. And um, honestly, attitude is everything. Work ethic, passion. Those are the things you can't uh, teach as a coach. They have to be instilled in a person. So I look for that. And when you're looking at these players and they're asking these questions about the school, but they're also asking questions about you and your coaching style and what your coaching beliefs are. So I'm going to ask you, what is your coaching philosophy if you have one? My philosophy is to make somebody uh, as good as they can be at what they do. So I'm not looking to cookie cut, not looking to make everybody conform to one style and improve on it make you the best you, you can be. Uh, I think that's the fairest way to treat someone as an individual athlete and not necessarily group them as a team and make them a good team athlete. There's a big difference there. You can, you can create a good team uh, when you try to create similarities between everybody who's playing for you, or you can take that individual and try to grow that individual uh, and let them understand or make them understand what, what, how they how they tick and how, uh, and how their game works best for them. And I would assume by you working within a person's game, like obviously if there needs to be a major change, you would obviously speak out, but work, it makes them feel more comfortable with you being their coach because you're not trying to change really what they've been doing, but more improving on what they already know and helping them be the best they can be. Right. So, I mean, that's exactly right. You have – uh, a person who has an established feel for their timing, you know, in a, in a certain way that they do things with, within their flexibilities that they, they have as an in, in individual. So um, because of that, everybody is different. If you look at the best players on tour, you know, how many of them look alike? They all do it a little bit differently, but they're all great at it. And so I have that philosophy that I've seen in a bold against uh, alongside with the best players in the world. And uh, I've seen them do it all different ways. There are certain things that they all do well, uh, but at the same time, they're still themselves. And a few others that actually kind of don't, don't even look close to anybody else. So someone like, say, a Jacob Butcher, who, who has a very unique style, 
yet he's an amazing player. Would I want right. to take Jason Butcheriff and try to make him Parker Bone? Heck no. I would ruin uh, Jacob if I tried to do that, right? So I would take Jacob and try to make him the best Jacob he can be. And that's a great way of looking at it. We have this coaching question, so I'll pose it to you. There's a player who has a 170 average but a low rev rate. He is a fantastic spare shooter, but he bowls with a ball that is drilled conventional. But he still has major success. So how would you coach this player? Well, so, you know, success is, I guess, based off of someone's interpretation of success. 170 is successful. Someone who can make spares, someone who probably can keep it in play pretty good. But um, in today's environment, success or great success is someone who can uh, get closer to 220 or 230 average, right? Right. So would I take a, a, a low rev player and make him a high rev player? No, but would I teach him to roll the ball a little stronger to be able to create more ball motion and be able to see uh, the lane better when we're bowling on sport patterns? In most cases, uh, if you don't have enough on the ball, you either have to be super, super uh, accurate um, or, um, you know, you're just going to be a person that's going to have a certain level or a little as far as uh, a cap to what they can do as far as average. Right. So I would try to develop that player, try to create a better role uh, off his hand, even though he's low rev, right. I keep him that way and, and utilize him for that type of player. We need those players uh, on our team. We need someone to be able to go up the lane, for instance, on fresh patterns, uh, straighter is greater in most cases. So he would be, uh, of use but um again looking at that interpretation of great success and basing off of 170 i would have to say listen there's a lot further we can go with this 170 is good it's a good base but there's a lot more to go and not only that there's a lot more to know i have basically most of my time with my players is teaching them the sport of bowling so lane play, understanding ball motion, all those things go in. They walk away from my program with as much knowledge as I can offer them. I don't try to withhold anything. I want to make them understand it as they will need to do that if they want to go any further with their bowling. And, and why should I spend four years with them and not give them all that I have? Uh, so there's a lot of information. I do a lot of presentations uh, and I do little pop quizzes to make sure that people understand what we're talking about. If they don't understand, then I review it with them. And you're talking about your players and the people that you bring in and working within their game. And it has translated to success with your program. Just this year, you have won a tier one event. I was at that tier one event. That's where I was first acquainted with UT Southern. And I was saying you guys were fantastic to bowl with and you put up phenomenal scores. And in Tier one events, you finished very. I mean, your tier one events, you finished very high. In your tier two events, you then came in fourth in another one, which is fantastic for a bowling program relative to the field. But I know that your program is looking to be one of those perennial power programs. So talk about your team's success this year, what's gone into that, and how you feel the rest of the season is going. Well, um, so we have two teams. We have the men's and women's. So my wife and I have uh, 
I've worked uh, with both teams. Um, I had um, a women's coach earlier this year uh, that did start the year, but uh, due to COVID and stuff like that, just wanted to back away from uh, that. So we have two teams and we've developed both teams over these five years. My women's team just won back-to-back -back tier ones out in Vegas a couple weeks ago. So they're doing uh, equally as well. I see both of them as uh, contenders for this year's national titles. Last year, we were runner-up in NAIA with the men, uh, but our women were actually higher ranked going into the tournament. So we have a lot of success on both sides of the aisle here. So um, it's not just our men, it's our men, it's our women as well. And talk about that balance because you have your wife to help you, but running two high-level programs at the same time, while it's a collective effort, it's also two separate teams. So how do you keep everybody engaged in having not just the men's goal, but also the women's goal and having your program as bowling be successful altogether? Well, like I said, it takes a lot of time. I'm, I'm sure we put as much uh, time in as any other program. Uh, we, we give them as much as, as we can, as much time as they can afford to give with their studies. Um, I think that is, uh, I think that's the key. Uh, we do, we do have a lot of structure and I keep them, uh, knowing what, what, what they're doing that day in practice and what the benefits would be of, of those practices. Uh, and, you know, again, spending as much time as we can. I think the one downside is you have a little bit less one-on-one -on -one time. Um, and so we have to find extra time aside for that. Uh, which goes into those, you know, many hours that we're talking about. So we have group setting and then we do uh, offer, you know, some one-on-one -on -one stuff, but it's hard. We have 40 plus players in our program. There's just two of us that are there every day. So it's a lot of work. We do, we do stagger our practice some so we can break it up in smaller groups, but uh, it's a lot of work. It's really something that is a, it's a labor of passion. I can tell you that it's, it's not, it's not because uh, it's something you, you do to, uh, to get rich. It's something you do because you love the sport. Now, one question I wanted to ask you with having such a fantastic varsity program with both your men and women's talk about your JV programs as well, because I view the JVs as maybe they're not at varsity level yet, or maybe there's just not enough slots. You have all these, fantastic people but you can only have eight on the varsity team so talk about how you view your jvs and maybe they're not the stars of today but the stars of tomorrow yeah it really is about growing them um well we are in a unique situation we have been fortunate to to do well with uh recruiting talented players uh, our, our men's JV one, cause we have two JV men's teams. Um, I can tell you that in these five years, I, I don't know that there's another program that has a more success with their JV teams. My wife has been their JV, uh, one coach for the men primarily through the five years. And she's only not won a JV event twice. And in both those cases, she finished second. Wow. So, yeah, they've been first every time they go out because they are actually another varsity squad. We have that much talent. It goes – it runs deep. 
And so, um, you know, each one of those players on vars on JV one have an opportunity to bowl for varsity. In fact, this coming uh, week, we have three of players that were JV one in our last event that are in our varsity lineup this time. You have to have that because there's certain times people are bowling well, sometimes they're not certain patterns, certain players bowl better than others. And so it's nice to have that kind of depth. It is, um, it sounds like it would be tougher for the players because they're not always on varsity, but at the same time, it challenges them. They all players on both teams are fact that their spot is not a given they have to work. And so by having that environment and they all grow because they're all going to work harder. Once you know that you're in the varsity lineup, you know, there's no way you can work as hard at it as if, uh, you're in a situation where you have to actually still make it uh, to qualify for the next one. Well, as they say, a high tide raises all boats. So the competitiveness within your program to have your athletes keep continuing to be great brings up everybody. So I feel like having a deep with such many good players is essential to having a good program. Yes. I mean, you know, listen, um, as a player – as someone who, you know, I played professionally a great part of my life. And, uh, I mean, I always had high expectations for myself and I was always a hard worker. And so I'm just taking the things that I know, uh, know and, and know that work, uh, and, and, you know, implementing them in our program. And speaking of you and your recruiting, I had heard that you had helped create the TurboTech Collegiate Expo. Is that true? And if so, what is that? Well, it is true. Before I went, uh, I, I initially helped uh, the very beginning of Turbo, the company. I was a salesman for them and helped grow the company uh, from its infancy. And uh, so I was always uh, connected to Turbo. And um, I went um, after the tour, I went to work for USBC Coaching. So uh, I was down there and in the coaching department and also with association relations. And after that four years, um, I had an opportunity to go to work for Turbo. Well, when I was in the coaching department, we had talked about different things that we need to be involved with when it comes to growing the sport. I mean, that's what it, we were all, uh, you know, the main topic is how do we grow the sport? How do we get people hooked on this sport? And, um, the one thing for sure was at the time I saw high school bowling really growing. When I got to Michigan, probably uh, one of the biggest states for high school bowling, I went to a, the very first high school event and it was 60 lanes full. Wow. And I'm like, wow, look at this. This is awesome. The place is packed. I love it. But in talking with the coaches and, and we talked about the opportunities to go to college, a lot of them said, yeah, I mean, if they know who the kids are, you know, like if they go to junior goal and do really well. And, uh, but otherwise, you know, we're not really sure, you know, the best way to make that happen. Well, I thought, well, what, what we need is, is something like a TurboTech where we create that connection, where we, where we bring the colleges in and bring the, the better players from from the area in and make the connection for them. Uh, we had bios, we had them uh, colored, tagged for what year in school they were. 
and uh, we put together the first one. It took us about two months to put it together, and the first one was wildly successful. We 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 sold it out, and the next year we did it again. We sold it out. We sold it out, and now there's been some copycats. There's there's a number of them going on uh, around the country, which is great because that's what it's meant to do is grow the sport. So now you have kids in different regions that might be under the radar. They have an opportunity to get in front of the colleges, uh, you know, and, and go on to to have some of the tuition covered and get the bowl at the same time. So it was really just about how to how can I help grow the sport? Wow. Well, I commend you. So me doing this podcast is my way of, do, of growing the sport. My career is still to be determined but hopefully it's successful but one thing as a college coach i wanted to ask you about was the pba modifying their amateur cash rules allowing college bowlers to bowl in pba events have you seen that and what does that mean for you and your program and your personal thoughts on that well <laughs> there's a lot there um i mean i depending on what where you're at in college bowling if you're under USBC rule, if you're under NAIA or NCAA, the rules are a little bit different uh, and are applied differently. But under USBC rule alone, you have players that can go out and bowl and compete in tournaments, uh, you know, regularly. Uh, that's not the same with NCAA. So I know there's this desire for the best players to go out and uh, compete and have a chance to, to win scholarship money, smart money. I know players on my team are, are that mindset, try regionals and kind of test their skills. Uh, so for them, I, I think it's a great opportunity to go out there and just dabble in it yet uh, not have to worry about status, right? Where they're at with the college, um, being able to go compete, see how they measure up uh, because, you know, they work hard, they practice a lot and they, you know, if they have that aspiration, I, I'll, I'm behind it not as much as I am behind getting four years of college in and, uh, you know, not quitting. Right. So I think it's a way to keep them in school and yet give them a chance to compete at the level in which, uh, they, they wish to, you know, most importantly is they get, they get, they get a degree and then try it. And so I think the PBA coming up with this, uh, opportunity is, is good in that regard. Well, that is a very interesting take. And as we wind down here, is there anything you would want people to know about UT Southern? Maybe it's you're having a camp coming up or something you want the recruits to know about you as a coach. Well, I mean, uh, listen, I mean, if you come come here and you're, you're under our guidance, I can promise you that you're going to learn a lot about the game. Uh, my whole my life has been uh, teaching the game as much as it's been competing. And um, I know the game very well. I've studied the game. And um, I'm willing to share that information with whoever comes, try to make them the best player they can be. I spent 30 years traveling, doing clinics around the world, uh, trying to share uh, what I know with people. And so they get that every day. So not just here. Bowl, bowl occasionally, and, uh, and you know, I can tell you where to stand and where to throw the ball. I'm going to explain to you why you'd want to be in this bowling ball, what you would expect when you change to this bowling ball. 
uh, and what kind of transitions you would expect on this pattern versus this pattern based on how they're built. So when it comes to lane play, understanding ball motion, uh, lane pattern, uh, the mental game, all that is something that I've experienced on a personal level and I can share uh, as much of that information with them as they want. Well, you heard it here. Uh, UT Southern is going places, and you have a Hall of Fame-worthy coach in Bob Learn who's going to lead his team to many glories. But that's all we have for this episode of the Pin for Pin podcast, so I'll leave you all with this. The levels of success are good, better, best, so never let it rest till you're better than the best. See you all next week.